Hello and welcome to Writer's Book Club. My name is Michelle Barraclough and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. This is a writing podcast with a bit of a difference. It's not just me asking the questions, you get to as well. On the first of the month, I let you know what book to read. Then you have around three weeks to read it and send in your writing questions for the author. And I'll ask them your question in the interview and give you a little shout out. One of the most useful things I think you can do as a writer to learn about writing craft is to read as a writer, to figure out how the author has done something, whether it's to make you care about a character or how they made you want to turn the pages faster or how they incorporated backstory, whatever it is. I think that's really the value of this podcast. So consider this your invitation to connect with the most accomplished and experienced authors and take a really deep dive into their work with them. I want to give a massive shout out to the listeners who've left five-star reviews recently, Leanne Lovegrove, AJW Perth, and Valerie Giselle. You've all left five-star reviews. Amazing. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to write those gorgeous reviews and to rate the podcast as well. It's hard to believe we're coming to the end of the second year of the podcast. If you are new to the podcast, Make sure you go and check out the backlist. You'll find some really wonderful chats about writing, craft and process with authors like Marcus Suzak, Jacqueline Moriarty, Hannah Kent, Candace Fox. There are so many. Just uh, dive in and, and have a look at the backlist. And I'm sure you'll find an author whose work you respond to and who you'd like to learn more about. Today, I'm delighted to bring you my writing chat with eminent journalist and novelist Caroline Overington. Many of you will know Caroline as the literary editor at The Australian, but Caroline is also a Walkley Award-winning journalist and has written 14 books, both fiction and non-fiction, including the novel we're going to be talking about today, The Cuckoo's Cry. Let me tell you a little bit about the novel. Here's the blurb. On the eve of the global lockdown, Don Barlow opens the door of his old beachside cottage to find a pretty girl with pink-tipped hair claiming to be his granddaughter. She needs help and has nowhere to go. He welcomes her in and so begins a mystery set in unprecedented times. With the virus raging outside their home, the girl cannot be asked to leave, but what does he risk by having her stay? As Don and the girl start to forge a bond, Don's adult daughter has her own suspicions about what the newcomer is after, but she's unable to travel, so how can she protect Don and discover if the girl really is who she claims to be? Hannah Ritchell said of this novel, Caroline Overington has an ability to home in on the darker, unsettling sides of life, seizing upon topics you might see headlining the news and spinning them into gripping page turners. And I reckon that's true about all of Caroline's novels. They kind of suck you in and keep you there, turning the pages until you're done. She's very clever. In today's interview, you'll also hear a special guest appearance by Caroline's darling old staffy, Bella. She doesn't like to be alone, so we followed her into the garden during the interview. The snuffling you can hear is definitely Bella, not me or Caroline, and there's a little traffic and construction noise as well, but hey, that's the beauty of podcasting, right? We can do it anywhere. I hope you enjoy this writing chat with the fabulous Caroline Overington. Caroline Overington, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. You've been on my wish list for a really long time because you're such a prolific writer, such an awarded journalist, and I think the listeners have so much to learn from you. So 
this is a wish come true for me. We're going to be talking today about The Cuckoo's Cry, and this novel just grabs you by the throat and doesn't let you go for 200 pages. I wanted to ask how the idea for The Cuckoo's Cry came to you and what was happening for you at the time. Well, I hadn't written an audible book before, and The Cuckoo's Cry started as an audible book. By chance, I happened to know uh, Ben Napastek, who was running Audible in Australia, and I'd, I guess I'd known him for about maybe 10 or 15 years. He ha- he was a journalist at Fairfax, or what they now call Nine Facts, and I was previously a journalist there as well for the City Morning Herald and The Age, and our paths must have crossed at some point, although I can't precisely remember how. I just know that he'd always uh, been part of my, well, part of the people that I, group of people I knew in journalism. He was given the job of running Audible in Australia, and the idea was that they wanted to gather together existing writers who could produce Audible books quite quickly so that Audible would have a presence in Australia of local writers. They really wanted to support local writers. They didn't want to just roll out all their existing titles for the Australian audience. They wanted to do something with the local culture and local writers as well. So he asked me to meet for a coffee. We went and had a coffee. And uh, he said, do you think you would like to try writing one? And I said, well, what, what are they really? Because I wasn't that familiar with Audible books. It was quite early in the in the process. And he said, well, it's very much like a novel, except that it has to be something you can listen to uh, as well as read. And, and it, it makes sense when you think about it like this. So let's say, for example, if you're describing a body lying on the road, if you were writing a novel, you might say, uh, Michelle crept up upon the body, was wearing a yellow coat over its face. Whereas if you're writing an audible book, you might just say, oh, what's that? Oh, my goodness, it's a body. Now, both of them could work in a novel, but an audible book requires a little bit more of the reader, I think. So I thought, Did it, is that something that I wanted to give a go? And I thought, well, I could give it a go. He also told me it was quite short. He said somewhere in the order of 35,000 to 50,000 words, whereas novels are normally 80,000 to 100,000. Of course, some are much longer. Some of my favourites <laughs> write much longer books than that. But generally speaking, between 80 and 100,000 words. I thought, I think I could give that a go. It was lockdown. Uh, so I was working from home. I, w- I had started my job as the literary editor at The Australian, which involved a lot of reading, but much less writing than my previous jobs. So I had some time to write and I thought I could give that a try. I was listening to the news one day and I heard Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, say at a press conference, wherever you are tonight, that is where you must stay because she was announcing a very strict lockdown. Wherever you are tonight, that is where you must stay. And I think they ended up staying in place for several weeks. And I thought, gee, that's an interesting idea because what would you do if you had somebody in your house who couldn't suddenly go home? And that became the basis of The Cuckoo's Cry, the idea that there is an older man. I have previously described him as elderly and I'm since informed that 75 is not elderly. But he's an older man. He has a daughter. She's grown up. He's widowed. His wife has died. His daughter runs an Airbnb and restaurant or accommodation restaurant style business in the Highlands. 
And so she has a couple of kids. She's very busy. Her husband's the chef. She runs the accommodation side. The kids are at school. Now they're homeschooling because of lockdown. So she wants to see him a little bit more than she does, but it's challenging. Same as for a lot of adults when they think about visiting their elderly parents. So he's living alone. And then there's a knock at the door. And there's a young woman standing there. And she says, you don't know me, but we are actually related. And she explains how they're related. And it kind of makes sense. He thinks, okay, that could be right. She said, look, I'm in trouble. And he, because he's a good person with a good heart, he immediately opens the door. And then comes the lockdown and she can't leave. So I thought it's interesting possibilities there because who is she? Is she telling the truth? And also who is he? Is he telling the truth about how she fits into his life? Why doesn't she have anywhere to go? And then you have the added comp or the added interest of the daughter who's like, well, who is this person? She says she's related to you. I've never heard of this before. Why is she suddenly there? And she can't be asked to leave. The daughter also can't visit because the lockdown's in place. So she's going to have to make some sort of desperate late night drives. thought there was a lot of possibility there. There's so much to unpack there. So when you normally start a novel, is it something that you would plan out and and did you do the same kind of a process with this Audible book as you would have with a novel? I wasn't entirely sure where it would go. I wasn't mm. sure that she was who she said she was. I knew how. I knew what she would say. I know I had to make something convincing enough to enable him to open the door. Now, I think he's kind of quite a trusting person and quite a good person. I think he's the kind of person if you knocked on the door because you'd run out of petrol outside his house or something, he would probably let you in and use the phone, you know, that the way all Australians used to be, I guess. You know, we never had much fear about that kind of thing. If somebody said they were in trouble, generally speaking, I think we'd all open the door and let them use the phone or yeah. whatever it was that they needed. It's probably a scenario less likely these days because we all have our own phones. But I thought it had to be... It had to be something that would that would that would be believable to him, but also believable to the reader. And then I wasn't quite sure whether or not she was going to be telling the truth. And that had to unfold as I went. This was going to be a read aloud story. Did that impact the way you wrote the book? I mean, there's a lot of dialogue in the book. Mm -hmm, exactly right. And so I was very conscious that I was for the first time writing an, a book for audio an audible book for audible for amazon because i had had books become audible books become audio books as it were but that's very different like you can have somebody read aloud a book to you and it can be quite a beautiful experience i've experienced that myself i take a long walk in the morning often meandering through a local cemetery and i will often listen to an audio book which has started life as a printed book but this is a little bit different they were looking for books that were audio first presented for people who will love audiobooks. And I can't tell you, Michelle, how many people absolutely love them and prefer them because they can listen to them on the treadmill, they can listen to them on the train, you, you take your phone with you in your purse, you get in the car, it comes on, resumes again next time you get in the car. You don't need the full attention. You do need attention, but you don't need the full attention that you do when you're sitting down reading a book and having to turn the pages and so on. You can listen to it while you're unpacking the dishwasher. So there has to be a fair amount of dialogue because that drives the story forward. There's also little things that you don't have to do, like you don't have to do so much he said, she said, that kind of thing because you have voice actors playing the roles. I think in Cuckoo's Cry they had 10 different voice actors originally and because 
the reader will or the listener will get used to the voice and so they know who's speaking. So you don't have to say Harold said or John said, that kind of thing. So little little tweaks, but I think quite important ones. And then so how did the process of turning it into a novel happen? Did they send, say then, well, actually, this well, your publisher is mm-hmm. Collins, right? So did they Indeed. say, can we turn this into a book now? So I went to a writers' festival and I was on a panel with Christian White, who is a fantastic writer from Victoria, a really quite stunning writer of thrillers. He'd written a book called The Nowhere Child and he'd written then another another book specifically for audio, for Audible because they had loved his first book so much and they had all and he was one of that group that I was describing before of they really wanted to support Australian talent. They really wanted to support the Australian culture and Australian life and Australian storytellers. And so he he had been approached to write an audible book. He was working on a Netflix special at the time. I remember he told me at the Writers' Festival panel, I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm writing a Netflix special, which became, I, I can't remember the title of it now, but it was that fantastic one that knocked, knocked it out of the park last year. It involved a man who was being held hostage and when it got to 5 million likes, he was going to be killed. That's and, right. of course, the more the, the viral video spread, the more people watched it and the closer it was getting to 5 million. Such a brilliant idea. So he was. it became that, although he didn't give that away to me. He said, oh, I'm writing a Netflix special. And he said to me that Audible had had agreed that his audio book could also become a printed book because he had a lot of fans of his printed books as well. So then I contacted HarperCollins, who are my publisher for some of my novels, not all of them. I've been published by Alan Nunwin and Random House as well. And I said, would you like to turn it into a printed book? And my publisher there, she said, well, it's short. <laughs> I said, yes, it is short. And and a short book works really well on Audible because you can listen to it in five hours. So that's about a week. If you listen to an hour a day in the car or on the train or whatever, that's about a week and you're done. You can listen to it faster if you want, but that's about what they're looking for. But a 50,000-word book or a 40,000-word book is quite thin. A novella, um, it right? It looks thin. Right. It looks thin you probably not want to pay too much for it because it doesn't look like it's a big hefty thing. Maybe it's not satisfying in the way written books because you're expecting them to be longer Then suddenly you get this short book, like, oh, this feels half done. So they had their reservations about it. And nonetheless, they said, well, let's let's have a go. And they had to make a few changes to take into account to the fact that it was written as an audible book. I think they were encouraged by the fact that it had been downloaded so many times. It had been, I mean, I was astonished, really. I mean, it's Amazon, so I don't know why I was so surprised. But, I mean, they put it on their Audible page and it got, last time I looked, I think it was 380,000 downloads. Wow. that That's more people than have ever read any one of my books individually. That's an astonishing number to me. But they, because it's an international market, suddenly I had all these people who were listening in the US and the UK and so on. So I think they were encouraged by that. They thought, and it was getting uh, quite good reviews. They had a lot of five-star reviews, some four-star reviews, some one-star reviews, of course. You always get a mix, but it had quite good reviews. And they thought, well, okay, well, people are listening to it. People are responding well to it. Let's see how we go. So they did a lot of work on it, for which I was really grateful. They put it out. And it worked. It worked. I think it surprised and delighted all of us, Michelle. <laughs> like it's not that thin, really. 
There's a know. few blank pages in the back there. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a look, if you have a look, there's quite a bit of they've made it look bigger than it is, which well, that's which probably, is interesting to yeah. me because I guess you, it has to be a certain size mm. in order to sell it as a book because otherwise, as you say, it's a novella. So I'm trying to think. I remember the last time Anne McEwen wrote a novella, I think it was 38,000 words on Chesil Beach. You couldn't be disappointed with On Chesil Beach. It's absolutely perfect. It doesn't need to be 100,000 words. It doesn't need to be 120,000 words. I mean, he's written long novels before. Yeah. Saturday was a long novel. But On Chesil Beach is perfect. There's not a, it's perfect. When you said that some people might feel like, a, you know, a book is half done, this did not feel half done to me. It felt like a really well-rounded story. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah. So mm -hmm. with massive amount of listenership and downloads did that did you find that there was a bit of a spike then in your backlist yes exactly right and and then another thing happened I did I did find that there was more uptake of the backlist but also audible then said we want to buy your backlist wow so those those books that had not already become audiobooks and I think there were six of them they said we now want to buy those because you have a lot of new readers or listeners, we should call them, I suppose. You have a lot of new listeners and we don't have enough content. So we won't would you like you to write another one if you can write another one quickly. But one way to um, to uh, meet some of that demand, people are sort of saying, oh, I want to listen to something else by her, then we could do this quite quickly. So I sold all six of them in a in a in one contract. And they very quickly had them recorded, pretty much all the ones, and then they put them all up on Audible so that people who were saying, you know how sometimes, Michelle, I'm sure this happens to you, I'm sure it happens to your listeners too, you read, oh, I'd like to read more by them. Um, and you're disappointed if there's not that much. So it was really good to be able to say, to people, well, it actually is quite a bit more from years ago. It's interesting because one of those books, I Came to Say Goodbye, was written at least 10 years ago and it suddenly took off. It suddenly just it for some reason found readers or listeners in the United States loved it and it just took off. And then suddenly I hadn't had any uh, listeners for that book in the United States and now I've got tens of thousands, which, and they write to me. Like I find Americans, I hadn't had much presence in America before, I find Americans are so forward and and generous and kind. You know, they write to me via my, my website and they tell me what they think and they ask me what happened to the characters next and am I going to do a thing? I think Australians are less less inclined to do that or maybe I just don't have enough readers in Australia, but I found that part of the process really lovely as well. How wonderful for you. I, I mean, that just gives you a whole backlist, this whole new lease of life. A new, mm -hmm. I mean, in business they talk about expanding the market or expanding your product range. Well, you had this fantastic product range, so to speak, and then your market has just expanded through this other medium, Audible, mm -hmm. and geographically, just amazing. Yes, it's that's right. And I've seen that happen with other writers too, that um, they might have had three or four different books. From memory, Jodie Bacow's, the breakout book for her was number four. Yeah, right. I think it was My Sister's Keeper. She'd written quite a few before that. And I think also, do you remember Gone Girl? I think yes. she'd written something before too. Right. Um, and then often what happens when 
uh, you find your readers, you find the people who like your work, then the publishers will come along and repackage your old work. They call it repackaging. Yeah. And they'll put new, new covers on it that all look pretty much the same. So the typeface is all the same. They bring them all in-house. They make them look like they're all part of your set, your brand, your, you know, and then readers know how to find them, which is a fascinating process because um, then some people will say, you know, I really like the early stuff. And, and yet at the time they couldn't sell it at all. <laughs> I know, it's hilarious. Um, they've just done that with Sally Hepworth. All of her books have been rebranded. Yeah. So if you look have at her, okay. all of her books now, are, uh, they all have the same font and the same look and feel and the same illustrated graphics on the covers. And they look amazing. I actually just got her new one on my desk because as well as being a writer, I'm the literary editor for The Australian, which is the National Daily. And so I often get, I, well, every day I get uh, books delivered to my office, but I did notice that the new Sally Hepworth had just arrived. Yes. So that's interesting that you point that out. Yeah. So she's obviously going through a rebranding exercise I really um, love her work and I also think she's the most uh, generous and kind and down-to-earth person you know she's had a billboard in Times Square and yet she's just like your like your friend from around the corner she's completely without <laughs> grace at all <laughs> she's just she's just um, lovely she's yeah, very she's relatable just... I think you know even though she you know the first billboard that she got in New York was above a Hooters so yes it was a billboard in New York but the fact that it was above a Hooters restaurant to her was the most hilarious part and she got massive <laughs> mileage out of that she's very what's the word self-deprecating I suppose and that's she what makes is. her very relatable and I think it's real I think it's real I think that um do you know what's interesting to me I've often wondered whether Australian writers uh I've often wondered if they have come across as a little bit aloof Maybe in generations past, the average punter, the ordinary reader, thinks, oh, they're up there in an ivory tower. They're not somebody I can relate to. But the new generation of writers, I think, are very relatable, as you say. Like they come, like Trent Tolton is just like a giant puppy. He's so friendly, so warm. It's incredibly genuine. And Christian White, the one we just talked about, exactly the same. And it's it's real. They're not pretending. Um, this is actually who they are. Maybe the generation before, writers were seen as maybe a little bit above us and therefore we felt like we couldn't relate to them in the same way it's been a really promising development I always think of that generation of the the Peter Carey era and I guess too we now have everybody so available on social media we have podcasts Mm -hmm. we have a proliferation of writers festivals writers are very accessible these days which is wonderful for both the readers and the writers I would assume so um, perhaps that's also the change that we've seen in the past few years. Yes although I have heard writers say it depends on the kind of personality you are because if you are a writer who just spends most of their time you know alone and working alone then suddenly required to be, as they describe it, a performing seal is quite intimidating. You're expected to be able to entertain a crowd. You're expected to be able to speak in public. Not everybody likes that. No. I did read somewhere once that speaking in public, some people find absolutely terrifying. And so I, I, I do feel for those writers, of course I come across them sometimes at writers' festivals, who are shaking, shaking. It's to do with their their personality. That That's just not the kind of thing that they like to do. They like to sit quietly and and string words together in a beautiful way. So it's a double-edged sword, I guess. It sure is. Back to The Cuckoo's Cry, I wanted to talk about pacing because you have these short, sharp scenes where you take us into each character's point of view. 
Tell us about that. Was that part of that sort of audible mindset that you had going? Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Because I have written books before from the point of view of one person in the first person. And I have written uh, books that, that move between the characters and each character gets their own chapter. But because it was going to be an audible book and I knew there were going to be voice actors, I thought that it was a good idea to try to give some variety to the voices that you would be hearing. Um, so that's what I was trying to achieve with that. And the short, sharp nature of it was largely a product of the length because if it has to be, the other thing is you don't really want, or I didn't really want, maybe some people do, but you don't really want too many long descriptions of the environment and the setting and the place. In, in my mind, the setting and the place take a back seat in an audible book because the dialogue does so much of the heavy lifting in the storytelling. Um, if you're reading a literary novel, for example, we're going to expect a lot of setting and place and that's particularly too, true I think of Australian novels where setting is so important but with this particular book I knew that it would be narrative that would get us there. Will you now take any of the lessons you learned from writing this audio book into future novels do you think? Well I wrote another I've just finished another audible book for Audible, which is being recorded as we speak one of the really interesting things about that was Amazon committed itself and Audible committed itself to a diversity program, a special diversity project about two years ago where, and the, I find this fascinating, maybe I don't know whether it is fascinating, but I found this fascinating, where they would cast the voices blind. So they felt like they had a lot of uh, white people reading their books and they felt like, they wanted to diversify that. And what would happen if you had no idea whether the person reading was from a Vietnamese background or any any particular background? So they asked me, would you be prepared to take part in this thing? I said, sure. I think it's a great idea because I could see myself that there isn't a lot of diversity in the voice acting. That's my dog rolling around on the thing that you can hear in the background. She's rolling around on the rug making grunting noises at us. And so then what happened was they cast all the roles for the book and it turned out that 80% of the roles went to people of colour, which I found fantastic because you would think to yourself, oh, that has to be played by a white man because it is a white man in the book. But somebody's voice, if they're a really talented voice actor, what does it matter it where they're happen. from? Yeah. But when you look at a picture and you think, oh, no, that's not the person who would be reading this thing. So I took part in that project and I'm going to take part in it again for the next one. And so I'm currently involved in that and looking at the casting and so on. And I've just found that to be such a rewarding process. I'm not 100% convinced that I will write another book. There is one book that I want to write and I don't yet have permission to write it. <laughs> it involves. <laughs> so this will be a involves, non-fiction? Kind of, yeah. I'm just going to have to let her out, Michelle. Is it okay? Because she's crying. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. She's out. crying at the door and I think she wants to sit in the sunshine. <laughs> I'll sit with her because she's ancient and um, she, doesn't like to, she doesn't like to be left alone. And so I don't think I will write another book unless I get permission to write this special project. And the reason is because I have to read so much because since becoming a literary editor, I've been getting about 200 books on my desk every week. 
and I don't read them all, of course. I don't even read a tenth of them because you can't. Nobody can read 20 books a week. And so then I thought to myself, um, I love this job. It, I didn't love it immediately. It was really, really hard work. And I felt a little bit intimidated by the workload because I didn't think I'd read enough and I didn't think I was smart enough. And I was worried that I would make bad choices and I would worry because I had written women's fiction and commercial fiction that people would say that I was dumbing down the section and that I didn't understand enough about classical literature. I don't have that kind of background or that kind of education. I went to a local public high school in the town of Melton and then I did like an arts degree in journalism part-time while I was working as a young journalist. So I don't have an, a background, but I'm not, I haven't studied classical literature. I haven't studied literature at tertiary level. And I thought I was really worried. I had, a, I had a terrible sense that I was not up to the job and that I would fail at it. And that, you know that old thing people would say, I don't know who these people are. Yeah, we, think, we I, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but I worried that people would say, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. And, you know, you know, she didn't go to the right school. She, she doesn't have the right background. So I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do. And I committed myself to learning as much as I possibly could, particularly about Australian literature um, and also about poetry, which was really not my strong suit. And that probably precludes me from writing too much. I would say that in the two years that I've had the job, I cannot get over the generosity of people. I had no reason to fear at all that people would be mean about it. I, I felt I was worried and I have found people so incredibly generous, particularly if they have an enormous mind and a wonderful, strong background in literature. They are so keen to help. And they are, if I, I've said to a few poets, I don't, I don't really feel like I know enough here. And they've said, oh, let me help you <laughs> because they love it. They love it. You know, they, they're so generous yeah. and no one has said, you know, you don't know what you're doing. This is what you should be doing. They've all said, hey, have you considered this or what about that? And I've learnt so much. I felt every day like my brain is just exploding from, from the generosity of, of people who have been in yeah. touch with me since I took over. Well, as I said to you in my email, thank you for taking it over because... I feel like it's got a whole new lease of life. I feel like it's more relatable. I was talking about this to my writers group as well, and we all agreed that it is now another reason to go back to buying The Australian for Nikki Gemmell and Trent Dalton and for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I used to buy it and was like, oh, God, the book section, it's getting thinner and it's just... Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, do, I do hear from people, obviously, quite a lot who say, oh, I don't read The Australian. And I'm always curious about it because... You know, the way we see ourselves and the way we're presented, it's so different. Like, we see ourselves as we're a national newspaper, which is a great thing for a country to have, especially a country as big as Australia. It says something to have a national newspaper. And it and we're a broadsheet, so we're serious. We've got a big heart. We're for the country. We're for the outback. We're for the beaches. We're for the forests. You know, our front pages will often be jackaroos, cowboys, or it'll be people doing oyster farming, or it'll be people doing deep sea fishing. You know, we have the most amazing photographers. Our columnists, people like Nikki Gamble and, and Trent Dalton, who writes for the magazine, are without peer. They really are so Agreed. excellent. They're just absolutely first-class writers. I, I know sometimes people say, well, I don't like the politics. And I, I think to myself, well, no, I don't either all the time, but I'm really happy to work for a newspaper that, that 
encourages all points of view i think to myself i don't want to pick up the paper and agree with everything and be and be one of those people who's just like oh yes i only i only read what i agree with <laughs> well yeah it's because then you'd be I, in an echo I, chamber you know yeah, yeah, and I find that writers generally are really interested in, in different points of view. Is it offensive? Sometimes some of those opinions are offensive to me, but I'm happy enough to be offended. I mean, that's, that's I'm happy enough to have that be the price I pay for the grand experiment, the project that is the National Daily, because we feel hugely passionate about it. And our, our books pages, I'm, I felt so completely honoured to be asked to do it. I did have a sense of, it, of wanting to make it more diverse. I wanted to bring in different kinds of writers and different and different genres. And I'm not talking about colour or sexual orientation. It's a different style of diversity. I mean, I mean, I wanted more fiction and non-fiction and politics and sport and music and recipes. And so, for example, I got um, a very enthusiastic home cook, Christopher Zinn, who's a former Channel 9 journalist, but he's a fabulous cook. I got him to look at three recipe books for me, which is something I think the literary pages probably hadn't done before. Probably not. I thought, well, yeah, but I thought, well, cookbooks is like something we spend a lot of money on. I don't know whether you got a wind of this last week, but Recipe Tin Eats Dinner, which is by a Sydney lady who runs the blog, Recipe Tin Maggie. Eats. Maggie. Yesterday became the biggest-selling debut book of all time. Of all time. Not just Amazing. this week or this year. Of all time. And so this Christmas, you'll be looking to buy some books and some of your listeners will be looking to buy some books and one or two of them may be a recipe book. So why shouldn't you be able to look at my pages and think, wow, this one's a good one? So what he does is he takes, he picks the recipes and he hosts the lunch and then he critiques the cookbook. And he did it. I mean, it was fabulous. The food was absolutely Such fabulous. Such a great idea. We didn't, we didn't have to have the haggis, which was great. Yeah. I was happy not to have the haggis. Yeah, so those kinds of things are different. But I wanted to do... I mean, once you take into account all of the politics and sport and the non-fiction and the literary fiction and then the, the actual so fiction, fiction and there's so much to do. And, and then you want you want First Nations writers in there because they're telling a different part of our story that hasn't been told before. And then you want people who have arrived since the Second World War because they've got a story to tell. And then you want more newly arrived refugees because it's a different Australia, again, for them, like a totally different story for them. So you've got so much that you need to cover to make sure we're telling the whole story, not just part of the story. I can see why you were overwhelmed to begin with. But I'm still overwhelmed, Michelle. <laughs> I'm still overwhelmed. Um, because then you've also got, you know, your crime readers and your romance readers. And I love that mm -hmm. section you've got um, that Cheryl Arkell does and sometimes you do it where it's just, it's not a review. It's half mm -hmm. a dozen or eight books that are out that you might be interested in because you might like romance, you might like crime, you might like this memoir, you might like, you know, this literary fiction. And it's just really well, it feels much more well-balanced. Well, Cheryl's done an amazing job there because the Notable Books column is the, the column that you're talking yes. about. that gives us an opportunity to showcase six or eight books. And I did get some criticism for that. Somebody said to me, um, you know, they're not, they're not book reviews. It's the review section, but they're not book reviews. And of course they're not. I mean, you can't read six or eight books a week. Nobody can. Um, so I think of it more like a shop window, a bookshop window. Here are some titles that you may find interesting throughout this week. Gives me the opportunity also to showcase the work of six or eight people who otherwise wouldn't get a review because that place used to be just one big review, which is great for that person. Yeah. Well, maybe not. <laughs> it's on the review. Depending on the review. But, uh, <laughs> but, but this is like a way to say the, the, the diversity and the volume of Australian writers is enormous and I want to try and encourage 
and celebrate as much of it as I can and so that column has been fantastic and Cheryl has such an eye for it like she just has she finds such interesting books that you know even stuff that doesn't even cross my desk she's managed to find I mean I just finished editing one of her columns yesterday it's like where did you find all these books that just a wonderful different range that she she's able to bring forward yeah well she's been doing it for a long time too um yeah that brings me to a question I was going to ask you later, but it's pertinent to what we've just been discussing. The author, Maya Linnell, asked a question. She wants to know what you think makes a good review and do you have any tips for writing good reviews? Yeah, so I mean, reviews, um, it's interesting to me. I really, I, I, I require two things from the critics who join my stable or have been part of the stable for a long time. Firstly, that they be fair-minded. I have been... Um, I don't want somebody to come at a project already hating that particular genre or already hating something about that the area in which they're working. I want them to come to it in a fair-minded way because sometimes I think to myself, well, this this person might say, oh, I want to review this, and I already know that they hate women's fiction or they hate, you know, they're, they're hugely dismissive of whatever, celebrity biographies or whatever it might be. Um, and so I think, are you going to come at this in a fair-minded way? I also really like them to engage with the wider world as well as the work because I think it's important for people to understand the context that a book is being published in as well. They don't have to be written books themselves, but they have to be book lovers. They have to be people who love books. I struggle with extremely negative reviews. I always say to the critics that work for the section, we're kinder today, boo authors, than we are to anyone else because they've really given it a red hot go and they've managed to produce something and you will have a lot of people in your circle I'm sure who are trying so hard can't finish the book can't finish the chapter can't finish the paragraph sometimes can't get a day's work done can't get an agent can't get a publisher can't get a, you know it's really hard so if you're a debut writer we are kind to debut writers and also they're going to get better so even sometimes with as with Trent, you know, you know, I mean, knocks it out of the ballpark. <laughs> it's just amazing. Like first book, just absolutely incredible. But others will get better. So we're going to debut writers. The other thing is, there's always something good you can say about a book, even if you, you know, you really didn't like it or whatever. It is. There's always something good you can say about it. And the, the third thing is, I don't mind if there's a big blowhard out there who's got like, you know, their third book out and they're not really. Like, for example, last week, Antonella Gambotto-Burke, who's one of our most popular reviewers, um, reviewed a James Patterson book about Princess Diana, and she absolutely smashed it. She said, you know, this is grotesque. This woman died in a car accident in, as a very young mum. Her boys were put through a terrible situation being forced to, you know, walk behind that, that coffin and, and grow up without their mother and the circumstances of the failure of their parents' marriage so public. And here comes a James Patterson who doesn't need the money who comes along pretending to know what she was thinking in the final moments of her life as she lay in that mangled wreck with, with Dodie beside her bleeding to death. You know, he gets inside her head and she's thinking all these things. And Antonella was so cross and I felt her passion. I think to myself, does it hurt James Patterson that Antonella is cross with him? No. So go go for your life. <laughs> go for your life. But you don't, but, but then somebody else, I think to myself, well, do we have to be gratuitously nasty to somebody or nasty to somebody who's just tried something that maybe hasn't worked? Can't we just say, look, I don't really think this worked without it being? So, yeah, I try to find a balance. Yeah, yeah. Talking about writing or not being able to write, you are a fast writer. I remember listening to an interview with you ages ago and you were saying that I, I, this was before you were the literary editor at The Australian. I think you were working as a journalist, but you said you worked 
four days a week. And then on, I think it was Fridays, you had Fridays off and that's when you wrote your novels and you just Mm -hmm. smashed out the words. Mm -hmm. So do you still work that way on your creative writing? I think that I think the cuckoo's cry was different because we were in lockdown. Yes, of course. And so it was a it was a different situation. I didn't have to go to the office. I did find the process of juggling writing the novels with journalism difficult because it's hard to carve out the time. So I would give myself the Fridays. The kids would be at school. My, I was married then, and my husband would be at work. Um, and so I would have the Friday to myself in the house with only the dog to to be let out every now and then. So that kind of un, uh, that kind of uninterrupted time enabled me to do it. I was very conscious of how, how would I explain this? I was writing books because I had things that I wanted to say, but I was also very keen to keep my pendants. And one of the ways that I did that um, during my marriage was I paid for the certain things myself with money that I earned myself. And it was often the book money that I used to pay for certain things. It gave me a sense of independence because my husband was a, a higher earner than I was, which is very common in marriages. It meant that men earn more than women do. Um, and I felt very conscious that I wanted, that it was important to me to keep financial independence. I think probably because I grew up in the country and and there was not a lot of money around. And so it was important to me to be to be independent. And that, you know, when, when you have a financial imperative as well as a creative imperative, <laughs> You find you can stick to your office and get those words out because you've got, you know, not one but two reasons to do it. So what are your tips for writing fast and getting those words down? Do you worry if it's the writing is clean or is it fairly clean at the end of those writing sessions? It's never it's never clean. It's never as clean as you want it to be. You always have to go back and, yeah. and do more work. Of course you do. But I do feel that sometimes just getting anything down on the page is better than getting nothing. I do remember, who was it who famously said, I only wrote six words, but they were all perfect. That's not me. That's not a novel. <laughs> half of a haiku people yeah very well said very well said um no that's not me I think I'm very much um in the volume volume first correct later fix later yeah how did you find writing in the pandemic I know a lot of writers have talked about a whether they should even refer to the pandemic in their novels but b they found it very difficult to write and to be creative in the pandemic so can you talk about those two things? I guess my marriage had ended shortly before the pandemic. We'd been married for 27 years and the marriage ended shortly before the pandemic. And then I was in the process of selling a house, selling the family home, trying to find a new place to live. Both my children customer-facing jobs, so they both lost their jobs. The university work went online because they were at uni, so they were at home. I had to Awesome. One of them came home from her little share house that she'd been enjoying very much because she couldn't pay the rent anymore. And my son had a had a girlfriend who was from Canada who couldn't go home, also lost her job because she was in uh, in retail. And uh, so she had to move in because she well, cause can't leave her on the street. So she oh had to move God. in. Oh, God, Caroline, you had <laughs> a fair bit on your plate there. <laughs> a lot going on. Yes. Um, and then, you know, do you remember when real estate prices suddenly started soaring so we sold the house and then I was trying to buy a new one and and property prices just would not stop and I and I couldn't I was struggling to find somebody to to give me a mortgage because I turned 50 I had I was responsible for the two children and you know banks just don't want to lend money to women in their 50s which is really interesting I I have a fantastic relationship with my husband he's a fantastic guy and he lives in he lives not far from here. He lives around the corner. He's had a new baby, which has just been brilliant for everybody. It's nothing like a baby to bring everyone together. But it was kind of 
there was a he, he like he went to the bank and they said you know can I have this amount of money I went to the bank and they're like we're not going to do <laughs> it's well, it's just the gender gap right it's just like he was he's in his biggest earning years in his fifties and, and yeah and I'm a woman in her fifties living alone like that no nobody wants to give you any money so it was stressful yeah. when Amazon arrived on the scene I was pretty happy I have to tell you I was going to say you deserve that break love (laughs) (laughs) but also do you know what else was interesting I heard a beautiful story earlier this week about two Australian poets who began writing to each other on their screens on their little messenger screens during lockdown and as the lockdown intensified they began writing they'd never met didn't know each other never met contacted came into contact somehow and on their little messenger app they would exchange poems and as the lockdown be- grew in importance and fear and the fear in the community grew they became more intimate and more and more panicked and more open and more they had to really trust each other and they were writing about you know isolation and boredom and loneliness and frustration and so on and then all of these poems have now been collected into a little book and you know Michelle they met for the first time at the launch of the book isn't that a beautiful story? Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. So I love the fact that your novel, The Cuckoo's Cry, basically uses the pandemic as a narrative device. Like it's the reason why the whole drama kicks off. And a lot of writers are scared to use the pandemic. They either want to set their novels in 2019 or sometime in the future or sometime before that they just don't want to touch it but yeah. you have just taken it like on the first page and this is terrific as well because it's just such a great example of establishing place and time because when somebody knocks on the door at 8 p.m he's wondering if it's his neighbor maybe with a dual pack of toilet paper under her arm or a pump bottle of sanitizer to give him and that's mm-hmm. like in the second paragraph and I thought, God, that's just perfect. It sets us perfectly in place and time. You did not shy away from writing about the pandemic. No, and, because, and I guess because it is a lockdown novel. And I was wondering to myself how many lockdown novels there would be because interesting what you said before, I think it was very clever of you because some writers couldn't write, but a lot of people had all the time they suddenly wanted. So I thought, are we going to suddenly get all these lockdown novels? And then we really didn't. And maybe it was because people felt like they didn't want to write about it. It was traumatic for a lot of people. I've just finished watching Clarkson's Farm on on Amazon Prime, you know, about Jeremy Clarkson was stuck on a farm for 12 months during the pandemic. Oh, no, I haven't seen away. It's such, it's so beautiful. It's so, it's such a, I know he's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's just beautiful. Suddenly they're having to deal with sheep and wheat and goodness knows what, all these things outside his comfort zone. But he had a lovely time during lockdown. He said, you know, we couldn't leave the farm, but nor did we want to. You know, we saw the sun come up. We had wine by the open fire, but it wasn't like that for everyone. For some people, it was really traumatic. If you couldn't see the ones you loved, it was really traumatic. And if you were sick, of course. I mean, I I reviewed a book by Hilma Wallitzer, who's 93 years old. I loved that Um, book. It's so beautiful. Today, a woman went mad in the supermarket. And, of course, you know, her husband died of COVID. Mm. So it it was a different experience for everyone. I remember speaking to a friend in New York because I lived in New York for a while, and I remember speaking to a friend and I said, do you know anyone who's been sick? She said, do I know anyone who's been sick? I mean, the, the doorman died, Caroline. 
you know, the, the girl who takes my car to the gym died. You know, they go, what do you mean? Do I know anyone who's been sick? Yes, of course. Whereas here, of course, in Australia, we, we were very blessed. And so I guess it was different. I couldn't avoid the lockdown because it was a lockdown novel. I've been surprised not to see more lockdown novels. And I'll be interested in the books that come out in the next year or so, which which will happen because they will have been written during lockdown, how they tackle it. I'm really interested. Yeah. Have you read Lucy by the Sea yet by Elizabeth Strout? Yeah. The new one? Yeah. Uh, I loved it. And, you know, Elizabeth Strout is so interesting to me because, you know, you talk to the average person in Australia, Elizabeth Strout, they don't really know who you mean, like the way they do John Irving or Philip Roth or something like that. But she is, without question, one of the giants of American letters. And she has created in those characters Olive Kitteridge, which is just one of the best characters ever created, and then Lucy Barton as well. So astonishing and it's now we're going on for five decades we've been reading about these people as they move through the various stages of their life and yet she's still a little bit below the radar even with Olive now I think it's at Frances McDormand who plays yeah. her in the TV series people are getting a little bit more but I said to mum the other day something about oh I'm reading, reading Lucy by the Sea by Elizabeth she said I don't know her I said yes you do you know Olive Kitch no I don't oh well get on it mum because it's great <laughs> aren't they aren't they just wonderful characters they're don't you feel like you know them wonderful and I actually listened to Lucy by the Sea on Audible and that was a whole other ha! experience <laughs> and, is, and, it, is it one voice or is it many voices it's one voice and I had to look up the narrator I didn't know who she was but she had a bit of a Meryl Streep tone to her voice you know that kind of one of those voices you could just listen to all day because I was going to say to you too that's the other thing about choosing cast members for your audiobooks is that the wrong narrator can kill an audiobook experience I think yes yeah Yeah. but um I found and I I'm only just getting into audiobooks because I listen to a lot of podcasts but Listening to Lucy by the Sea was an absolute joy. I just couldn't wait to get back to it. It was like a balm, even go. though it was about lockdown. <laughs> I think, and another another American writer who's in the same the same caliber, I think, who wrote The Dutch House last year, Anne Patchett. And wasn't her book narrated by Tom Hanks? Yes, yeah, The Dutch House was. So I mean, we're yeah, so we're talking serious people yeah. now. Seriously, big celebrities are involved in the reading of Amazon Audible yeah. books. I mean, to get Tom Hanks to read a book was, and that was easily one of my favourite books of the year. The I Dutch loved House. it too. I loved it. I just thought it was fun. I mean, I do like fiction by women. I like fiction by men too, but I do like um, those kind of, I mean, maybe it's the age I'm at now that those rich, multi-layered female characters really appeal yeah. to me. Yeah, Anne Patchett is another, I, I think I'd read her shopping lists as well as Elizabeth Strout's. Yeah, and it, <laughs> Yeah, and again, and she, and yet she's a little bit below the radar, isn't she? She's not. She's not. Isn't that interesting that we know the men so well, and yet we don't know the women as well? Yeah. It's so interesting. Well, to me. lucky, luckily, we have you at the Oz, bringing these voices to the people. It's- yeah, we we did an interview with Elizabeth Strout last year, and the, the writer who did the interview was just. She said, "Oh my God, she's just amazing in real life. She's just wonderful." Yeah, she's so great. Now, I wanted to talk to you also just about the editing process because we touched on it before that it went from audible to book form and how much editing did you do and how much did you sort of have to leave to the publishers how did that all work so when I finished it it went through two editing processes which is really interesting to me too so the Americans did it for audible and then the Australians had another go and they didn't agree on the on certain okay. things and what sort of things didn't they agree on I mean the outcome is still the same and the 
the storyline is still the same. But there are parts of it that um, the Australians wanted differently from the Americans. And I found the opposite is also true. So, for example, the book that I've just finished for Audible, I sent to the American editors because they will be the ones who edit it. And there were things that they they were like, no, that would not make sense to us. That does not make sense. Which I think probably would it get an easy pass from an Australian editor. So it's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? How culturally we think we're we think we're similar, we're but we're not. not no, and that comes out time and time again. I think, especially when you do listen to authors talking about their publication processes in the UK, Australia, and the US, and all the editors have to come together, and they don't always agree. <laughs> Yes. What is this boot? Why yeah. is he doing that with his boot? No, that's the trunk of the car. Oh, yes. And it, yeah, and it, but it's not just yeah. boots and trunks and sidewalks and footpaths. No, of course it's, it's not. It's, it's really cultural things. differences, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. Surprising. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Things that, like, for example, leaving the back door open, the idea that you would do that in Chicago is unthinkable. Yeah. Like you're asking for trouble, right, in certain neighbourhoods. Yeah. Whereas in Australia, still not that uncommon. Yeah. For people to leave their back doors open, really. I mean, I know a lot of people, I mean, maybe not anymore, but certainly I know a lot of people growing up who would have left the door open. Yeah. It's key under the mat for tradesmen. Yes. Whereas American editors are like, they're not going to leave a key under the mat. I'm like, why? In some (laughs) cities, you wouldn't even walk outside your door at night. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. And also in American books, you know, you can have people reaching for guns quite easily. You can't do that. You can't do that in Australia. You've got to go for the knife block. No, <laughs> you've got to go for the steak knife in. in exactly or right. The, exactly. Or the Stanley right. knife out of the junk drawers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, culturally, we're very different. Caroline, I feel like you're the absolute master of the inciting incident and it's not just with this novel it's with all your novels you take us straight into the action so in the ones you trust it was this child's abduction it like happens on page one in uh the lucky one you know fresh bodies being found in an old cemetery and with this one the stranger turns up on the door on the first page openings and inciting incidents are something that i think a lot of new writers struggle with because they're kind of feel like they have to set the story up and put a bit of backstory in. What's your view on openings? Do you always just start off with a bang? Oh, well, I mean, if, if you're struggling with your opening, read Jane Harper. She's the queen. She's the absolute queen. Do you remember those opening pages of the dry, yeah. the bodies and the, and the flies buzzing over them? And, I mean, she's just fantastic. And then, and also the one, I can't remember the title of it, but where he's goes to see the grave and the man has obviously been moving in a circle around the grave as he's tried to stay oh, in the, the shade of it because they're in the middle yeah. of the hot desert. Amazing opening. She's the absolute queen of opening. She's astonishing. Um, my view is that I think you've got to grab, you've got to grab your reader pretty early and you have to sort of say, well, something's happened to you pretty quickly. I did hear somebody once say, just start writing, write, 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 and then cut off the first two pages. Because that gets you out of that gets all the fluff out of the way. You don't need them. That's just that's just you getting things straight in your mind. But bang, here it is. It's happened. Other people quite like the slow build. I read a, I read a book the other day. It was about a maid. She came up the elevator. She oh, she knocked on the door. There was no answer. She used her key card. She opened the door. Body on the bed. I thought, yeah, okay. I'll read the next chapter. Whereas if I'd had to do the whole. You know, she gets up in the morning, she feeds the kids, she gets in the shower, she gets on the train. Then, you know, you're dragging it down a bit. When you edit your work, uh, like you've written a first draft and then you edit, where do you feel like 
you're mainly focusing on making improvements, obviously not openings. Usually the the holes in the plot become a problem at some point. At some point you realise that couldn't have happened or that can't be. But, you know, somebody very famous whose name has escaped me once said, when in doubt, kill somebody. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) You can solve a lot of plot holes just by killing somebody. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) That that can sometimes help. But, that yeah, they do become a problem because then people will say, but if this, then wouldn't they have done that? before or but if they did that then they couldn't have done there that and so then you have to kind of go through and nut them all out and you just think oh how am I going to get that person to do this because they weren't there at that point so then you've got to go yeah that I find that just so annoying nothing worse than when one gets through those sometimes one gets through and then a reader will write to you and they'll say but that can't and then you're like "Uh uh-oh and do you find that the voices of your characters really come to you? Like, do you know about your characters? Do you do a lot of thinking about their motivations and all of that sort of stuff before you begin writing? Or does that sort of come out on the page for you? I knew a lot about this particular character, the old man, because I lived in Bondi and it's set in Bondi and there's heaps of people. I've been here for nearly 30 years and it was a working class neighbourhood when I moved in. We bought our first house here when we were kids you know, very early in a very, in a very young marriage, very early. And um, it was still a very working class area and pubs were a bit rough and you could walk around in pyjamas. Now you have to have a gold Lamborghini and probably a gold bikini as well. But there are still a lot of people who have been here like me for a very, very, very long time. Um, And they suddenly have found themselves like this chap up the road. I think he told me he bought his house for $35,000. It's got to be worth just location alone and the size of the block that it's on it would be in millions and millions so there are people like that and and that was my um my inspiration the idea of somebody who's pretty down to earth pretty working class pretty good values nice person no airs and graces not flash money not new money but sitting on fortune yeah. don barlow through through no through no fault yeah, of their own yeah. sitting on yeah, a fortune just because that's where they happen to buy a house you know i love don I love him too. He's a lovely character. I love him. I didn't want anything bad to happen to him, but at the same time he was playing such an important role in the book. I knew that he had, you know, the threats to him had to be what what propelled the reader along. I wasn't convinced that they would be as invested in threats to the girl. I think that they might have been a bit suspicious of her straight away, which is good because you can play with that. You can play with the idea that maybe there's nothing to be suspicious about. Maybe she actually is the good one. You don't know, but... Yeah, I felt with Don that they would relate to you. Yeah, I think so. You know, with the marketing of this book, things have changed obviously from when you wrote your first novel to when you've written this one and it's getting out there in the world. Do you think the role of social media has really impacted on the way we market books these days or do you think it still comes down to booksellers and reviews and word of mouth? I had never heard of TikTok or, or Instagram or anything when I started, but they are massive now. Social media is massive because it is word of mouth. It is people saying, I really love this book in the the way that we used to talk about books face-to-face. We now do it online. And there's no way Colleen Hoover, for example, would be as big as she is without the impact of TikTok and Instagram. And I think it's fantastic because it's a really terrific way. I mean, I don't see anybody really uh, smashing books online. I don't see people saying it's absolute garbage or this is rubbish. It's all positive pretty much it's positive it's enthusiastic yeah it's getting people reading you know it's getting people enthused people are hand-to-hand passing books around saying this one's great this one's great this one's great I want more of this I want more of that I mean we have to be happy with 
I'm not on Twitter. I find Twitter pretty toxic. The conversations are a little aggressive for me, which is disappointing. And, you know, but people are sort of passionately engaged with politics and so on, and there's going to be more arguments there. Um, whereas Instagram, which I just joined about, uh, I think, earlier this year, I find a really warm and welcoming place for books. You know, people are really sharing books, loving books, being enthusiastic about books. And I think it's women of our vintage. There's a lot of us on there, aren't there, our 50-something ladies? <laughs> yeah, that's probably why we won't catch the kids on there. And kids I think they've all... They're on something else that I haven't even I know, heard No, they've probably. all moved on. I had to read Nikki Gemmell's article last week, uh, her column last week, talking about Be Real. I'm like, um, be real. Nikki, thank you. Yeah, Keeping all of us yeah. older women up to date on what's what you know, in the socials. She's fantastic, Nikki. She's just brilliant. She wrote a she wrote a book last year which just blew my socks off. It was about an early love affair that she had before she was married and had children. Yes. With a guy that she was just passionately in love with. Passionately in love with and he was completely wrong for her. Completely wrong for her. She really wanted to write and she needed a lot of support. She needed someone who was really behind her, but he he didn't he, he couldn't be that person for her for all kinds of reasons. Gee, it was fantastic. She, uh, there wouldn't be anyone who would read that who wouldn't think, oh, yeah, that was my long-haired guitar playing. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah, that was a dissolve. Yeah, yeah. Dissolve. And you want it to work, don't you? You want you want yes. these relationships to work. You believe you can make them work. And it's the hardest thing in the world to accept that you can't. Yeah. That for, No matter how much you love them, how hard you want to try, it just isn't going to work. And it, letting go of that relationship with Nick is one of the huge learning curves that women yeah. make and have to overcome. And then I don't know if it ever leaves you, which is why I thought Dissolve was so important because she married a wonderful man. She had four great kids. And there's still that little chip in stuck in a little shard of glass stuck in her heart. I loved that man. I loved him. And I couldn't make it work. So interesting. My friend Joanna Nell brought it to one of our writers retreats and I said, oh, God, I've been meaning to get this. And I picked it up and read the first couple of pages and then said, I'll be back in a couple of hours because I just, I literally <laughs> fell into it. I loved it so much. One of my other listeners, Amara McKee, has noticed your presence on Instagram and says, Caroline's such a regular maker of content on Instagram. Do you have any tips for making Instagram content? I only just joined Instagram earlier this year, um, one of my friends, actually, she said, you'll love it, it's very fun. And, and I sort of thought about some different things that I could do, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And I and it is me. Like some people say to me, oh, do you have like a social media team or whatever? No, like that, <laughs> that is me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have I ordered online a, a light up number three and because people often say to me what do you do with all the books coming to work and the answer is I give a lot of them to charity we sell um well the ones obviously books go out to critics who read them and review them but the ones that were not able to accommodate for various reasons either get sold to charity or the book sale and the money goes to Indigenous Literary Foundation or the Story Factory or I donate them to local shops Secondhand bookshops who then, because our community, I think, thrives if there's a bookshop. But also I bring some of them home. And so people are always interested, I think, in the one. So which ones from that enormous pile each week make the cup? And so I bought a number three from the internet that lights up and I do each week. These are the three books that came home with me this week. They're the ones that I'm going to try to read personally and address personally in reviews um, because I can't possibly 
read 200. And people like it, I think, because they too have a thousand books to choose from, whether it's they're shopping on an online site like Booktopia or Amazon, or they are going into their local bookshop and they're confused. Well, they're not necessarily confused, but they're interested to know, oh, what, what might I like? And so I find that they, they find the process of how I minnow them down <laughs> useful for their own minnowing down. Yeah, and you do seem to pick, like I think last week's one was, you know, a book that was very important to you, something that you really mm. wanted to, to bring light to. And there's a good mix of fiction and nonfiction. And um, I love that little segment you do. So well done, Caroline, for someone that's oh, only good. been on there for another <laughs> year or less than a year. Well, you feel, you, feel, you feel a bit idiotic in the beginning because you don't really have any followers. I found that really challenging. And I still don't have any followers. Really, I have a 1,000 followers. Kim Kardashian has 45 million and, and many people people in Australia have tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. And one of my dearest friends is Mia Friedman, who has well over 250,000 followers. Mm. So when you have like a, like 50 and then 80 and then 120, and then you feel like, oh, I'm talking to myself here. But I have found people really generous about getting on board and following, and hopefully I'm able to offer them something. I'm not selling anything. I don't do any paid posts. I'm not trying to convince them of anything. So hopefully they find it interesting. And then I, the last couple of weeks when I've clicked over a 1,000, I've started to feel less like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> You're not talking to yourself. <laughs> there are a lot of people, I think, getting a lot of great value out of your Instagram posts. I hope so. so. I hope so. Caroline, it's been absolutely delightful chatting with you. I could keep going for another hour. Oh, same. What's next? What's next for you? Same. I'm sorry for the interrupt- interruption okay. of the poor old dog. <laughs> I share the dog actually with my ex-husband, so I have her a couple of days a week and he has her a couple of days a week. She just arrived last night, but she's getting very old, Michelle. She's nearly 13 now. She's got bad arthritis like her owner. <laughs> We're all getting old. <laughs> she wanders in and out. Um, next on the agenda is I'm going to publish this new book with Audible uh, probably next year and then but I hope I really hope that I continue doing the right kind of job for the Australian if they're happy with me then I would love to keep doing it for a little bit longer or maybe even for a lot longer because I have I have gotten over a lot of my early insecurity about it. I feel like I've got a handle on it now not completely but I've got a handle on it and I feel enthusiastic about it so I'm keen to do it for as long as I can that probably means that I won't write as much yeah. because I've got to read so much but it's a good contribution to make do you think to to be reviewing books and putting books out into the world Absolutely. and encouraging people to read more that's I think that's I think it's a worthwhile thing to do it seems like a great balance actually because you've got that but then writing audible books which aren't as big as a full novel you know it's sort of it's the best of both worlds really and then you've got an instant paperback as well if yeah. Right. Collins or your publisher decides to <laughs> decides that it's yeah, decides that they want to take it on. Exactly. But but for now, encouraging writers, I always think if you're a writer and you've got a book, do hit me up for a review. I may not be able to accommodate it because I do have to say no a lot of the time, just simply because of the space constraints. We are a print-based model, so we only have room for four or five reviews each week, sometimes six, out of a pile of two hundred. So if you if you work that out, I say no ninety-five percent of the time which is traumatic for everybody. But you've got to be in it. If they don't approach you, they've got no chance of getting a review, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I do hear from a lot of self-published authors because I've, I've happily published reviews from self-published authors. If you're self-published, it doesn't mean your book's no good. It just means you couldn't find a publisher. No one can find a publisher. And also it, it just means that the publisher couldn't, didn't see it as commercial, didn't see that there was a financial 
get benefit to be made. That doesn't mean it's no good either. So I happily review and extract from um, self-published books. I hear from a lot of those people. I feel like if my contribution over the next uh, year or two years or maybe even five years is to encourage writers and to encourage readers, then that will satisfy me. Well, thank you, Caroline, because I feel like that's exactly what no, you've thank done you. today. Thank you're, you. You're, you're, we're going to put this out there and I think writers and readers will get a lot out of this discussion. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for thinking of me and thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Caroline. Wasn't she great? She's just so smart and warm and engaging. I really, really enjoyed that chat. Do make sure you grab a copy of The Cuckoo's Cry. It's a real masterclass in plot and pacing and characterization, all the things we talked about. And it's an excellent example of a lockdown novel if that's something you're thinking of tackling. Wasn't it also fascinating that it began its life as an audiobook? When you're reading the book, I think you can definitely see that theatrical element on the page, particularly with the dialogue. You can find Caroline at her website, carolineoverington.com, or go and follow her on Instagram. Be one of her next 1,000 followers, and that's where you can catch up with her weekly video series, The Three That Came Home With Me, that she talked about in the interview. That's where she tells you about the three books out of all the books she sent every week that she's brought home from the office to read personally. It's just a really great video series. I also want to give a shout out to the authors Maya Linnell and Amara McKee for your excellent questions for Caroline. Thank you so much. I've put links to both of those authors' Instagram accounts in the show notes, so go and give them a follow too. Now to our November writer. She's one of our most popular and prolific authors with 29 books under her belt and an Australian Book Industry Award for Best General Fiction for her novel, The Patterson Girls. She writes women's fiction, or what she calls life lit, as well as rural romance and contemporary romance. She is, of course, the one and only Rachel Johns. Rachel and I are going to do a deep writing dive into her brand new novel, The Workwives. Let me tell you what it's about. Here's the blurb. How well do you really know the people you work with? For workwives, Deborah and Quinn, it's a case of opposites attract. They are each other's lifelines as they navigate office politics and jobs that pay the bills but don't inspire them. Outside work, they're also friends, but where Quinn is addicted to dating apps and desperate to find love, Deb has sworn off men. Although Deb's not close to her own mother, her teenage daughter Ramona is her life and there's nothing she wouldn't do to protect her, but Ramona has other ideas and is beginning to push boundaries. Life becomes even more complicated by the arrival of a new man at the office. One woman is attracted to him, while the other hoped she'd never meet him again. But when Deb, Quinn and Ramona are forced to choose between friends, love and family, the ramifications run deeper than they ever could have expected. The latest novel by best-selling Arbia Award-winning author Rachel Johns will make you laugh, cry, and wonder what secrets your friends are keeping. Doesn't that sound terrific? Would you like to win a copy of The Workwives? Of course you do. To enter, just go to Writers Book Club Instagram or Facebook and look for the giveaway post. Entries close on November the 12th, but of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's a new giveaway every single month. So follow me on Instagram or Facebook and you'll always be in the know. You can pick up a copy of The Workwives wherever you buy your books and it's everywhere at the moment because it's just come out. So have a look around for that gorgeous blue and bright pink cover. Um, It's in every format. 
So grab a copy, have a read or a listen if you are into audiobooks and send in your writing questions for Rachel. You can ask her anything about how she wrote the book. Setting, research, dialogue, backstory, pacing, whatever jumps out at you when you're reading the book, make a note of it and send me a direct message or an email or jump into one of the posts on Facebook and Instagram and I'll ask your question in the interview. Okay, I think that's it for this month. You'll find all the show notes for this episode right here in your podcast app or on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com. I recorded today's episode on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks everyone for listening and I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing.